Well, let's remain standing and take your copy of God's Word out and turn this morning to Mark chapter 14. We will be reading verses 32 through 42. We'll be looking at those, those verses this morning. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32, let us give heed, let us give good attention, and let us humble ourselves before this word, God's word, to us this morning. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we sit at your feet this morning, as we hear your word, as we consider it, Father. We pray that these things would not leave us untouched and uninstructed this morning. We pray that you would speak to us the things that your Spirit has for us this day. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We have spent a good amount of time going through Mark's gospel, the record of the life and the ministry of Christ, and we know that throughout his ministry that Jesus has mentioned on numerous occasions, recorded um, particularly in John's gospel, uh, that my hour, he said, has not yet come. Several times he said that in John 2.4 and 7.30 and 8.20 and, and several other places. That is, he was speaking of the hour of his, his passion, his suffering and his death and his resurrection. Well, beloved, this morning in the events of this Thursday night as we read this morning, Jesus says plainly, as we just read in that passage, that the hour has come. The final hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion are about to come upon him. The suffering is about to begin in earnest. The wheels are now in motion. 
And we have before us, recorded this morning, the last conversation that Jesus will have with his disciples before he reveals himself to them after the resurrection on Sunday morning. Thinking back to what we learned last week, this morning we will read that the shepherd will shortly be struck and the disciples will scatter as Jesus has foretold. This is also one of the most mysterious episodes in Scripture. That is to say that that though it is very straightforward and plain in language, yet it brings before us mysteries that we are unable to fully explain and really unable to fully comprehend. Things concerning the incarnate God, the second person of the Trinity in human flesh, And perhaps as a, a reminder here as we, as we begin, a reminder of the, the nature of our Savior, our mediator who has come, Jesus. The nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Westminster Confession summarizes uh, the biblical teaching in, in this way, I'll just paraphrase this, that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is himself completely divine and is himself God, of one substance and equal with the Father, that in the fullness of time that he took to himself a complete human nature with all of the essential properties and the weaknesses of that human nature, yet without sin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, in such a way that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the divine and the human, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, without composition, uh, without confusion, without one nature being turned into the other nature, without the two coming together and creating a third nature, and without the natures being mixed together. A divine nature, a human nature in one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, such that our Lord Jesus Christ is completely God and completely man, or perhaps better to say truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, and that he is the only mediator between God and man. And the passage that we have before us this morning, the event that we're looking at today, reveals Christ as man, reveals the human nature of Christ as clearly as any other passage. Time here, as we come to this part of Mark's gospel, time has really slowed down for us. We've been kind of going along at a pretty good clip Then things have slowed down a little as we came to the the Passion Week, and now things slow down even more. The Last Supper that we looked at several weeks ago was just a very short time before this, perhaps an hour. And Jesus and his disciples have left that upper room where they ate. They have walked out of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley. They've ascended the Mount of Olives, as they had done every night for the past four days, 
Only tonight they do not continue on into Bethany as they had done, but Jesus leads them on this occasion to one of several small gardens of olive trees on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. Not to hide, but Luke reminds us that they go here because this was his custom, Luke said. This is a place that the disciples knew. It was a place that that they would very often uh, come to meet and to pray and to fellowship. And it is one that all of the disciples knew that was a regular place where Jesus and his disciples met. Judas Iscariot knows that as well because he had been there so many times with them. The garden is known by the name Gethsemane, a word from the Hebrew that means olive press. And here it is that Jesus himself will be pressed, will be pressed almost beyond the limits of human endurance. There are actually two things that we're going to look at this morning as we look at these verses. We'll look at the suffering and submissive Savior, and we'll look at the sleeping disciples. First, the suffering and submissive Savior. As as they come to the entrance to this garden, it is now quite late at night. And as they enter, Jesus says to his disciples, verse 32 here, Sit here while I pray. That is Jesus' purpose, that is his need in this hour, is for them to watch and to pray, to wait. Um, One of the things that we're going to see over these next several weeks um, as we walk with Christ through these hours and as we witness the suffering uh, Savior is we're going to see an increasing isolation uh, put upon Jesus. Just a few days ago, on Sunday, when Jesus entered the city, remember, he was sort of, as as we might view it, he was at the, the height proclaimed by the people as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Son of David, he who comes in the name of the Lord. But now we have seen his support starting to sort of peel off. We've seen one of his disciples even enter into an agreement with Jesus' enemies to betray him. And he has, that one Judas has left the group now and has gone to do just that. Jesus has predicted, as we saw last week, that the remaining disciples are going to flee. They're going to be scattered when he is taken. Peter, the leader of the twelve, will shortly deny that he even knows Jesus. And in the end, the people who recently shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will be shouting, crucify him. As Jesus is further isolated, and of course the crescendo, or the nadir, I guess, of of this, will be in that cry from the cross, when Christ is judicially forsaken even by his Father in heaven, as he, Christ, actively bears the sin and bears the guilt of sin of all of those who have ever and who will ever call upon him in faith, as he hangs between heaven and earth and cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it all begins here. But as it begins here in the garden, Christ, in a sense, willingly isolates himself as he begins 
to feel the, the, the weight of what he knows is coming. He leaves eight of the disciples at the entrance to the garden and tells them to wait here, sit while I pray. But remember, as we've talked about, Christ has a human nature. And the human nature of Christ is not just physical. It's not just his body. But in addition to a true human body, he had, and has, by the way, let us always remember that Jesus didn't exchange and trade in his human nature when he ascended back into heaven, but he still has it and he will have it for eternity. But it's not just a human body, but he has what theologians have called a rational or a reasonable soul, a true human soul. He had real emotions, true emotions. Among those other things, he had a a desire and a need for companionship, as we do. And so as Jesus enters into the darker places of his passion tonight, he takes with him Peter and James and John to be with him. And he confides in them. He speaks to them. He pours out his heart to them. The description that is in verse 33 has the marks of an eyewitness account. And again, we're reminded that Peter is the source of much of Mark's record. Look there, it says in verse 33, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And then in one of the most human and most mysterious utterances of our Lord in verse 34, he says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. He takes with him Peter and James and John and began to be, this text says, greatly distressed and troubled. And the words that that Mark uses here in this little section of this passage just drip with angst, with anguish. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. It's important that we think on those words Because as Jesus speaks those words, it, any idea that Jesus just kind of glibly goes to the crucifixion as some happy martyr is expelled. Jesus' human nature is powerfully on display here, clearly on display here. My soul is very sorrowful, he says. The word, the phrase means to be overwhelmed with this, to be stretched to the limit. One translation says, appalled and profoundly troubled. We read the phrase this morning in our Old Testament reading. Um, in fact, the same words in the, the Greek version of the Old Testament that we have in the Greek version here in Mark's gospel, where it talks about his soul being cast down. That's what Jesus is feeling now. And all of, these, all of this language compounds together to try to convey the effect on Jesus that these looming events are having on him. 
My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Other translations uh, sort of get to this a little better when they say even to the point of death. We speaking today might say this is killing me. Jesus is feeling genuine, human, horrific emotion about what is coming. Because in his divine nature, he knows exactly what is coming. He's been predicting it. He's been talking about it. And he is racked with emotion, including fear. Fear in the sense of recoiling from the horror that is ahead of him, the, the shame, the injustice, the unrelenting pain and torture of crucifixion, plus the quite literally unimaginable to us reality of the full blast of the wrath of God against sin. And again, we must be careful to point out that it was not his sin but your sin. This is the reaction of God made man. This is the reaction of a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has in every respect been tempted as we are, Hebrews 4.15 says, because he has been made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect. That's Hebrews 2.17. And we see it here. We see the results of that here. But as important as it is for Jesus to be able to, to share this with the disciples, with Peter and James and John specifically, what happens next requires solitude, requires the solitude between Jesus and his Father. And so now he leaves Peter and James and John and goes a little farther to pray. But he leaves them with instruction. He says, remain here and watch. That is, be watchful, be alert. Yourselves remain in prayer for me. Can you imagine Jesus saying, pray for me? That's the, the outcropping of what, what he's saying here. Mark says, then he went on a little further. Still within earshot, apparently, or as Luke writes it, about a stone's throw away, just a short distance away. But further isolation. Now Jesus is apart from the eight. He's apart from the three. Now it is just Jesus and his Father. And this powerful display of the weight of this moment continues as Jesus, well, pours out his heart, his soul, his human heart and soul to his Father, with whom he shares at the same time the divine essence. And notice first here his posture in this prayer. It's not the typical posture of prayer for the day, which would be standing with arms raised, but rather it is the, the posture of a desperate person who comes and prostrates himself before God. Mark adds that very dramatic note that he fell on the ground. And he prayed. 
Verse 35 says, He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here's a further escalation and illustration of the the, the inner turmoil of Jesus as he stares the climax of his mission, the reason that he has come to this earth and ministered for these three-plus years in the face. And as I mentioned at the top of the, the message this morning, we in this come face to face with mystery. And in a further demonstration of the humanity of our Lord, as I said, he falls on the ground and prays to God, Get me out of this, if you can. If it is possible that this hour might pass, if it is possible within your perfect will, O God, that there be some other way found, he prays that God would find it. When now facing the prospect of the coming events, both physical and supernatural, which would presently be set in motion, the humanity of Christ now deals with that prospect. And the human nature of Christ, uh, involved with the, the person of Jesus, of which the divine nature is also involved. By the way, don't try to get your mind completely around that. We can't. But as this bears down on the God-man, he cries out to his Father. Jesus has, after all, been speaking of this moment. He's been prophesying its arrival. He has even set his face like flint, the scripture says, to make this last journey to Jerusalem in order to face it. But it's like when we learn that we have a, a surgery that we have to have, a major surgery a delicate surgery, a difficult surgery, a dangerous surgery. You know, when it's off in the distance, we can talk about it. Sometimes we can even joke about it. But the night before, the night before the surgery, the weight of it looms large, doesn't it? And fearful on our hearts. Now, of course, that analogy falls short, far short of what Jesus is experiencing but as Jesus prays here, let us learn from this that this is not just a lesson for us. This is not play acting. Jesus is not involved here in, in hyperbole. This is a real, genuine request. These words, this prayer is an expression of the human nature of Christ. Even as Jesus told his disciples earlier that the Son of Man doesn't know the day or the hour when his return would be and, and sort of reveals that aspect of the human nature and the limitations of that human nature, we see it here. Because in one sense, as Jesus notes in verse 36, in one sense it is possible that this hour could pass from him. Why? Because he goes on to say all things are possible to God. 
Jesus will remind the disciples later that he could have asked and God could have and would have sent more than 12 legions of angels to rescue him, to take him out of this. So in a sense, it is possible, was possible, but in another sense, it was certainly not possible for this hour to be avoided. Not possible if mankind is to be saved. Not possible if the head of the serpent is to be crushed. Not possible if evil is to be defeated. Not possible if death itself is to have its sting removed. That is to say, not possible if God the Father is to execute his decree, his plan, to keep his promise, to be God. Well, perhaps, you may think, maybe God could spare Jesus, spare his son, and save man some other way. Maybe there's a a plan B. No, there is not. It was mankind who sinned, who rebelled against God, so it must be man which suffers the punishment because God is perfectly just. But in order to withstand the wrath of God against sin for all of those whom he uh, he was redeeming by this act, and in order to provide that righteousness that we talked about earlier that must be reckoned to sinners, to do all of this, the one who serves as the Redeemer must not just be man in order to pay for man's sin, but he must be God himself. He must have no sin of his own, and he must possess an indestructible life to not be destroyed by the wrath of God being poured out, and he must have a perfect life, or else he'd have to pay for his own sin. So it could not be done. Once God had decided to save mankind from his sin, from, his, from their sin, there was no other way it could have been done. And then the prayer that so far has just been summarized is now transcribed for us in verse 36. And he said, Abba. And then Mark, again writing to Gentiles primarily, translates that, Father. Aramaic and Greek both given together in order that Jew and Gentile might be struck by the intimacy of this communication between Jesus and his Father. The recognition comes. He says, all things are possible for you. We just talked about that. Then comes the request Remove this cup from me. Again, this is a genuine request. The cup is a common Old Testament metaphor for the judgment of God. More broadly, it can be used as an expression of a, of a destiny, of a coming experience. But in the scriptures particularly, it has to do with the judgment of God coming. The cup that is being prepared for Jesus is the horrible, unimaginable, soul-rending experience that Jesus is beginning to face now. So there's a recognition, there's a request, but there's a resolution. Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
the absolute submission of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, God made flesh as the servant of God, the submission of his will, even an agonizing prayer to the will of the Father is that God's will be done. And note that it comes immediately in the same breath as the petition. I desire the removal of this cup, but I desire your will to be done. See, beloved, here's the mystery that I mentioned. Because the will of Jesus and the will of the Father and the will of the Holy Spirit is one will. There is no possibility of a difference within that one will of the one triune God, equal in power and glory, and one in will. The will of Christ is the will of God. How could there be any difference? And yet Jesus says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And here enters the humanity of Christ. The God-man, who the scripture says grew in knowledge, grew in wisdom, though he was eternal God, who knows all, who learned obedience through what he suffered, the scripture tells us, who agonized in consideration of these things. Here is Emmanuel, God with us, standing at the precipice. And now, the terror of hell, physical death, and the wrath of God are poured into the cup and hand it to Christ. Glory, of course, lay on the other side, but first he must drink the cup. And it affects him deeply, even the only begotten Son of God. No, no distrust is, is going on here. No doubt but a comprehension of great suffering in body and soul, suffering that we could never think of beyond what any man could now or ever imagine. Even those who have suffered in hell for uh, when they've suffered for a million years, they will not know, they will not understand what faced Christ who would suffer as it were, millions of hells, eternal punishment for every soul who calls upon the Lord and is thereby spared. For them and for us, Jesus suffers your fate, your punishment. Is there any other way, Father, that I could be spared what lay before me? Nevertheless, I am prepared to drink the cup completely. And people of God, he will. Beloved, this is the torment of the Son of God in the garden that night, and it was real. Again, this is not just a figure of speech. And for this prayer, Jesus desired his disciples to stay watchful, to stay alert, to support him in his time of need. And so how disappointing in the extreme a picture awaits Jesus when verse 37 says that he came 
and found them sleeping. Now we want to look at the sleeping disciples. Jesus had predicted that they would fall away, and in a sense, they're already beginning. And there was one disciple who, you will recall, had made a special point about bragging about how the others might fall away, but he never would. How he would die with Christ, but would never desert him, never deny him. Where is he? Where is Peter? Is he praying? Is he watching? Is he trying to keep the others awake? We have to stay awake. The Lord told us to stay awake. We need to to pray. We need to be watchful. No, he's over there with his head on a tuft of grass, fast asleep. And so Jesus specifically addresses him. See it there. And he said, Peter, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Notice that he doesn't call him Peter. Mark mentions that he's talking to Peter, but he calls him his given name, Simon. Not Peter, not Rock, but Simon. As we go through the the Gospels, we see that that is the name that Jesus typically uses to refer to Peter when there's some rebuke involved, and there is rebuke involved here. Simon, are you asleep? I almost hear that tone. Really? Simon? You have some mighty big boasts to live up to, and you can't even stay awake for an hour? By the way, the word hour just means a short time. It may not have even been 60 minutes. You can't stay awake when I'm in my time of need? You boast that you will die with me, but you can't even stay awake? Then he turns to all three, to Peter and James and John. These commands that he gives here are all in the plural to all of them. He says, watch and pray. Pray, he says, that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation to sleep when you shouldn't. To not pray when you should. To not be watchful. To fall away when the shepherd is struck here in the next few minutes. As much as I need to be in prayer, Jesus is saying, you do as well. Remember when Jesus taught them how to pray, he told them and he told us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus encourages his disciples again, pray, watch. My beloved disciples, the hour has come. Pray. Now, it's not really surprising that they would be sleepy. It's probably after midnight at this point. They've had a big meal, the Last Supper, a big meal with wine. So, yeah, it would make sense that they would would be sleepy. But Jesus asked them to stay awake, to watch and to pray. But he's still gracious, of course. He recognizes and he tells them here, 
that the spirit, and by that the spirit, they means the, the spirit of man, their, their constitution, their attitude. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the flesh here is not in the Pauline sense, uh, speaking of a, a metaphor for our sinful, fallen nature. Jesus likely means here, I know that you desire to watch with me. You desire to do what I've called you to do, but you're tired. But he says, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Prayer is the means of fighting even your natural weaknesses. And after telling them this, he gives them another opportunity to demonstrate what he's asked them to do. Mark and the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus went again and prayed, and Mark says that he prayed using the same words. So you see here that, that now the focus is kind of off of what Jesus is doing and on what the disciples are doing or not doing. Jesus went away and prayed using the same words. And verse 40 says that he came again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Very simply, they didn't have an answer when Jesus would ask them. Shockingly here, not even Peter. And after Jesus goes off and prays again, still in great agony of soul, and returns again, he returns again, and again, they're asleep. And Jesus says to them now in verse 41, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? You know, if this were a modern translation of the scripture, Jesus might be recorded as saying, really? We see here how kind of oblivious still the disciples are that Jesus is in the crisis of his life, the crisis sorrowful unto death in great agony of soul. But now... Jesus doesn't chasten them anymore. He doesn't encourage them any farther because the time for that is over. In the middle of verse 41, Jesus says, it is enough. He says, the hour has come. The predictions of Christ that this was going to happen, the scheming of the Jewish leaders have worked toward it. The betrayal of Judas has made it inevitable. The purpose of Christ coming into this world has necessitated it. The predetermined plan of God has moved toward it using the will and the work of wicked men. Jesus' hour has been coming ever since he was laid in that manger. And now the hour has come. The answer to Jesus' prayer is given, and Jesus has fully accepted it. He and his Father are of a single mind, a single will, and Christ has taken the cup prepared for him and now begins to drink it because apparently he has heard the footsteps of a great mob of soldiers approaching led by Judas. Apparently, 
He has seen the torchlights in the night. Rise, he says. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There are aspects of application here that we could look at how we ought to always be alert and praying, how we, like the disciples, are weak through, through our humanness, through our fallenness, how we are, much like Peter, more likely than not to fall short of our own boastings and, and so should be humble people. But, but what I want us to take away from this message this morning, from this passage this morning, is perhaps a fuller idea of what Christ has endured for you, Christian. a fuller idea of what it means that Jesus took on a human nature with all of its weaknesses except for sin and to remember that Jesus agreed, as I said, to take that nature not for 33 years or for 2,000 years, but forever. A fuller idea of how much Christ loved you, Christian, and loves you that he would willingly continue on this road in order to save you. There's a hymn, it's a current hymn, that says, what took him to this wretched place? What kept him on this road? His love for Adam's cursed race for every broken soul. Let us have a fuller idea then of how much we should love him who has first loved us, who did not hesitate when his hour came. Let's pray. Father, there is much here that, that we can't completely understand. But we can't understand that Christ came to this crisis, this crossroads, and he did not hesitate. Though it grieved him and troubled his soul even to death, as one of the other gospel writers said, that his sweat became as great drops of blood, that he still said, not my will, but yours be done. And for our sake, he drank the cup that was offered to him. Lord, help us to love Christ. Help us to show that love by obeying Christ. But help us to remember that he has done all of this because of the great love with which he loved us. We pray this in his name. Amen.